Hello, listeners. Welcome back to eMigCast, your source for emergency medicine ideas, inspiration, and information for medical students. I am Allie Gallagher, a third-year medical student at Oregon Health and Sciences University, and for today's episode, we'll be talking all about telemedicine. Joining me today, I am proud to introduce Dr. Blake McKinney and Dr. John Dutton, both emergency medicine physicians in Sacramento, California. Dr. McKinney is co-founder and chief medical officer of Cirrus MD, a virtual care company providing primary and emergent remote care for patients throughout the United States. Dr. John Dutton is a medical director for Cirrus MD and the Cirrus MD Provider Network. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Sally. Uh, happy to be here. Good. So let's start with the basics. What is telemedicine and what was the inspiration for founding this company? Sure. You know, telemedicine is a big word uh, that means a lot of things to a lot of people. It can mean anything from teleradiology, where images are transmitted for a radiologist to read or interpret, to uh, video visits that can be either from a doctor directly to a patient in their home, or consultative telemedicine, where one provider asks a question, say, to a specialist uh, with or without the patient in the room. Uh, at SiriusMD, we observed the industry of telemedicine happening and we decided that there was an unmet need that when it comes to my friends and family when they have a medical question they'd like to text and so that's really where SiriusMD came from. Awesome. So do you see um, trends or challenges within our healthcare or emergency care systems that have really promoted telemedicine? For example, changes in insurance or long wait times in emergency departments. I think access to care is one of the great problems of our time. Uh, John and I in the emergency room see firsthand where the system breaks down as it's intended. Not very many people can get right in to see their primary doctor. Your primary doctor is busy. That's where the unscheduled care industry has sprung up. Uh, all of us have one urgent care, if not six urgent cares in our neighborhood. And the genesis of that uh, industry is 100% originated from, I can't get in to see my doctor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, telemedicine springs up from the fact that uh, patients don't have just one provider anymore. They have multiple providers. It's a care team, and that, that goes for patients who are sick with a chronic problem to patients who have an acute illness. And that's, so we're feeling a need for patients to get care um, when they need it, where they need it. Great. Uh, are there different types of telemedicine? And what does Cirrus accomplish as a platform? How is that different from others? Sure. Just a kind of a brief intro to the, to, to the history of telemedicine. It's, it's really grown from calling your doctor on the telephone to uh, the advent of video technology about 20 years ago uh, coming into the mainstream. And now you're seeing entire care teams able to engage with patients remotely via multimodal communication. Everything from email to our text-based platform uh, to this concept of asynchronous telemedicine, which can be taking a video of your child having a seizure and forwarding that to a neurologist. Um, there are dozens of 
of apps, uh, technologies, and programs that let people take a picture of a skin lesion. And there are programs where a dermatologist will read that later for you. Um, to some of the really exciting technology we're seeing around um, machine learning and artificial intelligence having better diagnostic accuracy than uh, board-certified dermatologists, radiologists, pathologists uh, when it comes to asynchronous review of, of certain types of images and lesions. And um, I think uh, part of what Cirrus does well is we meet patients where they are and in the setting that they like um, via text. So we're able to chat with patients texting back and forth at their leisure. So when we will respond immediately on our system within 90 seconds to a, a request for care and what we call an encounter. And that encounter can take place over 40 minutes of real time, but in doctor-patient time, it's three to five minutes of care, and this can happen while a patient is at their desk. Uh, they can get help for something that they have going on that they don't feel comfortable stepping out or they don't have time to go to the office and they can't do a video visit, but they're able to chat and people like to text, that's what we do. So Cirrus has filled that area and 85% of our encounters are, are taken care of strictly through chat, but we have the ability to do video uh, uh, pictures as well as phone if needed, so it's a multi-modality system. Great. Um, so I think this brings up the point of patient confidentiality, right? And um, how do you guys approach that? Sure. So we keep using the word text. Mm -hmm. And maybe I should take a minute and back out. Um, when we think of SMS text messaging, that is unsecured, uh, that the telephone company can read that. Uh, that's how we communicate with our friends and family. But um, in order to bring that same experience into a HIPAA-compliant, secure, and transmissible environment that can be QA'd and owned by the health system, mm -hmm. by the doctor, by the uh, the house, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, we had to build a platform that was robust enough to to meet rigid, high-trust data security requirements, yet still feel like the experience of texting. Mm -hmm. So um, all that security is built in, and, and we thought of that from day one. It matters in the code, and um, that patient confidentiality is, is top of mind for us. It's a, it's a new way to practice medicine, and being a pioneer causes you to step carefully because there's not a trail paved ahead. Um, in doing that, we, we think about a college student sitting in the common room at the dorm on her phone, and to all those around her, she's just on her phone doing what, whatever it is we all do on our phones but she's actually talking to a mental health provider about her deepest, darkest problems and the situation that's going on. And that scenario means a lot to me because what that tells me is that text is incredibly private. So what is an encounter like on Cirrus? Can you just walk us through that experience so, from a patient's point of view? Right, so from a patient's point of view, they have an issue. Um, they log into the system, and it depends. We, we as a company, our, our, our program is white-labeled, which means that if uh, Health Plan has, uh, uses our system, they have their name on it. So as far as a patient knows, it's that Health Plan's, uh, it's, it's their device and their, their program. So we, a patient logs on to the system uh, for care, and they just have to type. They can say hello. They can say, I've got burning when I 
urinate. They could say, I have a really bad headache, I fell into some ankle. It, it runs the gamut of what they have. And we can take care of from minor. Uh, there's a large number of minor issues that we service, but also um, we can take care of patients with more complex issues. And the reason we do that is we have a continuity of care in our system. So a patient isn't on the portal for 15 minutes and then they have to get off. Um, that care can go as long as they want because we have doctors that are dedicated to be on the service for a shift, just like a shift in the ER. And um, that's for us, that's uh, anywhere from four to seven hour shifts depending on the service. And so that patient comes on, they text back and forth, they can send pictures. Um, for example, a patient will come in to show us a, a cut that they had three days ago and it doesn't seem to be healing right. And with pictures and with talking to them, we can realize they have a cellulitis. We can get them treated and taken care of. And it's not just getting antibiotics, it's talking to them about elevating their legs. So a lot of what we do is reassure patients uh, the, through the encounter. And that goes back and forth until we're done and the patient feels like the care has been provided. And we feel like we've provided the care they need. And if we need to, we'll actually have them come back on the system to follow up, see how that cellulitis is doing two days later. So we have that ability to follow uh, those patients through the system. Great. So since I'm seeing this through the lens of a medical student, what about the all-important physical exam? So what aspects of a physical exam are feasibly accomplished virtually, and what are the limitations of an exam that necessitate pre presentation to a brick-and-mortar emergency department? Yeah, great question. And, uh, you know, the exam is a part of what we do. And often um, one of the first ways we examine people is with our eyes. And as clinicians, we walk into a room and we see what we see and we begin to form our impressions. I think that we form impressions in lots of ways. And, and, and the more patients I laid hands on in my practice, I discovered that what Dr. Osler taught us is is still probably the most important lesson for any young doctor, which is listen to your patient. Mm -hmm. He's telling you the diagnosis. And that's, one, that's something that we are able to do, is we can listen to the patient. We can listen to them via the written word. And that's what's so interesting. If we examine our civilian lives and how we communicate, and how we communicate intimately, I met my wife, on Match.com. And we texted before we ever talked on the phone or we ever met in person, and we developed a rapport that was interesting enough that we were able to form an early friendship and a bond that way. And over time, it occurred to me that when my friends and family would text me a medical question, well, I knew the answer. The first one I, I, I specifically remember was a friend of mine was prescribed an antibiotic, and it was three times a day. And she texted me and said, can I just take all three at once and let it be a once a day? And my response was, no. Those are in intended to be spread over the day uh, in, you know, for all the reasons why. And that was an example of uh, answering a patient's concern, but there's no the, the physical exam isn't in it. So um, clinicians know when somebody needs to push on that belly. Clinicians know when the picture isn't enough, we have to actually look deeper. Sometimes people aren't getting the picture of the back of the throat well enough, and you can't tell whether there is or is not a peritonsil or abscess. And there are a certain percentage of people, um, we think it's around between 15 and 20% of people who 
who self-select to come into a chat modality who we're just going to have to redirect them and somebody's going to need to lay hands on those people. And, and you can tell that by talking with the patient and going through what you know. I consider a poor man's physical. I'll have them stand up, jump up and down if they're telling me they have belly pain. And if I say, can you jump up and down? Does it hurt? No, it doesn't hurt at all. Then I can say, okay, it's probably not an acute abdomen. We have time to talk and talk some more about it. If I have them jump up and down, they go, oh, that really hurts. Oh, where does it hurt? Down right in the bottom, kind of in the right side of my abdomen. Well, it's time for you to go to the hospital. And that's the nice thing about our system and telemedicine in general. We have the ability to move them to a different level of care. And what we do, even when we are redirecting uh, di them, we're directing them appropriately. So we're able to give them to the right person and help them along through the pathway, the healthcare pathway, where they may not be able to do that on their own. They may end up in urgent care. No, and, and they don't know that they shouldn't go there. They should go straight to the ER, and we can help them with that. Great. Um, what metrics are used to show that telemedicine can keep patients out of the emergency department? Are there any? Um, and uh, do you think that those metrics will evolve over time? The, we're in the second inning of telemedicine right now, and we're just beginning to discover what are the important measurables. I think it depends on who you're asking. If you're asking a health plan, uh, they care about two things. They care about total cost of care, and they care about member retention. And so we use member satisfaction as a proxy for member retention in that people have a choice when they choose their health plan. Um, similar with a health system or a medical practice, how satisfied were you? So I think um, in, in our experience in the market, patient satisfaction is, uh, is one of the most interesting uh, metrics that we, that we track and we follow. Total cost of care is uh, something that's easy to get at if you're working with a health plan. Um, but if you're a health system, you care more about brand loyalty. What am I doing to cause people to choose to come under my roof and not across the street? Mm -hmm. You know, we measure response time um, because we care about how quickly our doctors respond to the patient. It's, an, you know, anybody who's coming onto their screen, especially their mobile device, and expecting instant service, instant access, it's what we're all accustomed to with every other service. So at SiriusMD, we measure that initial doc response time, and our median is 52 seconds. Um, while keeping the average under 90 seconds. And uh, so uh, initial response time is, is something very important to us. It's also um, a mark of good tech. Um, good tech is intuitive and, and, and results in a greater user experience and higher patient satisfaction. Um, are there any differences in state practices and how does, how does that affect uh, the the experience from the physician's point of view working for CRSMD. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, state license, licensing of physicians is state by state. Um, as compared to, I have a state driver's license for California. I can drive anywhere in the United States. My license is good. As medicine, my license to practice medicine in California is not good in Nevada. It's not good in Washington. There is some reciprocity, uh, but we have to know, and that's part of what, what we have identified uh, something we have to follow. We have to know where a patient is, 
and if we're able to practice medicine and help them in that state. And that changes from state to state. Some states say, it's where you live, it's not where you are, so if you can talk to your doctor where you live. Other states say, oh, no, no, you can only be seen by a doctor in the state where you are. So we, that's, a, that's a part of telemedicine that we have to be very aware of. Also, um, also ages a patient, so emancipation of a patient, a 15-year-old in one state is an adult, and it's not in another state um, if you've had a child. So there's a lot of variabilities, and that's important um, for telemedicine. And it's a, it's a challenge that we um, are, are meeting on a daily basis, and the laws are changing as we speak. And there are actually licensure compacts ongoing between right now between 22 states. So if you get a license in one state, you'll have it in others. And that's to help promote access to care for patients in states that don't have a lot of access. Yeah, I would just add that many of these rules are inane. Good medicine is good medicine, whether you're in New York or California. And our doctors, many of them carry multiple state licenses so that they're able to treat patients in different geographic areas and to offer continuity when somebody's health plan takes a more conservative uh, approach in interpretation of state-by-state -state rules. We as doctors sometimes go to the effort to get licensed in additional states so that we can continue to provide access, uh, for example, when people travel. And we, we want to take care of patients, our patients, wherever they are. As a physician, that's what we all want. And um, whatever we have to do to do that, we'll, we'll do that. So, but I think in our time, we will see the breakdown or the merger of, of medical licensure into more of a national standard yeah. uh, than, than uh, a 50-state standard. Yeah, what yeah. we see now. It makes sense. Um, so thinking of um, evolution and change, uh, do you think that undergraduate and graduate medical education should or will change as telemedicine expands? I definitely do. The, the skill set to listen to a patient and understand what he or she needs via a medium that some people would see as limiting um, is something that should be taught towards. The ability to communicate with someone via the written word is something I never had exposure to in medical school, but it's coming. There, we've had millions and millions of texts sent between patients and doctors, and we're seeing in time that we're improving outcomes, we're rising, we're raising satisfaction, uh, we're, we're getting somebody to the person who can help them, whether it's a system navigation question or clinical assessment. And I think that doctors today are going to need to have some heads up that, that there are more modalities coming than the old make the patient wait to see you in the office. So much of what we can do, we can handle remotely. Right, and, and that goes with doctor-doctor communication. Part of our system is texting between providers. So um, if I'm seeing a patient who is a high-risk pregnancy patient and I have a question, rather than, oh, I don't really know, and I've got a call, and maybe put them hold, and they, they're in the OR, and I can't hear back, and that patient's waiting, I'll text the doctor, and, and on our service there are people that are on call just for that, and they can answer my question. And sometimes they'll say, why don't you pass that patient to me because it's an issue just for them, and they can take care of it right on the spot. So we're, doctors are going to have to communicate that way as well. And so 
um, there's a there's a transition to that happening, and medical students need to learn that. And the ER is a great place for that transition to happen. Um, we see it with a program we have called Safe Transitions, um, which is uh, multiple sites are using, and it's post ER care. And we know patients leave the ER; they're confused. They've had a huge five six hour visit, and they they get a lot of information, and they go home, and they really don't know. And oftentimes they end up back in the ER because they didn't understand what their prescription was, or they didn't get directions right, and they said, if it hurts more, come back, and it hurts more. Well, you know, that was just the normal course of your healing, that pain. So they're using safe transitions. They're able to text the doctor directly uh, when they get home or four hours later or a day later. And oftentimes, those questions can be answered without having to have to reuse the system. Great. So what is the future of emergency medicine, and how does telemedicine fit into that future? I think the future of emergency medicine is that... Uh, we're going to be spared the the larger economic movement for a little longer. Uh, most doctors, especially primary care, are going to begin to take economic risk for a population of patients. What I mean by that is that you, doctor, are going to have your panel of patients and some company, whether it's an integrated delivery network like a Kaiser Permanente or a health plan or a health system that takes on those type of models, is going to tell you, care for these patients, and don't drag them into the office to write a chart because that's not how you're paid anymore. You're paid to keep them well. Go do that by whatever means necessary. And having technological tools that can allow you to provide a lower barrier for your patients, they're going to turn out better because gone are the days of the three-week wait to see your doctor. That's where primary care has made itself less relevant to people. That's where the urgent care industry sprang from, was the three-week wait. So I think that the future of, of, of care is headed in that direction. Um, emergency medicine will continue to be reimbursed on a per-encounter basis, I think, uh, for some time. And so uh, with all the forces at play to try to push care further into people's fingertips, I think we're going to see ER utilization decline. So I think ER doctors are going to look to find ways to, you know, anytime there's change, there are winners and losers, right? So we want to win. And so we're going to find ways to deliver services that aren't reliant on waiting inside the hospital for people to show up so we can make a chart. I think the future of emergency medicine is bright. It's attracting smart doctors who are interested in innovation and change. Uh, we're used to change in the emergency department and with new technologies like telemedicine, uh, we are finding ways to use it to our advantage as we talked about earlier with safe transitions and I think that'll continue and people will always need emergent care, especially as our population ages. We just need to find new ways to do it smartly and uh, more efficiently. All right, that's all we have for today. I want to say a big thank you to Dr. McKinney and Dr. Dutton, two emergency medicine physicians from CirrusMD, a virtual care company working on the forefront of telemedicine, for their time and insight. Thanks, Allie. Thank you, Allie.